Hello, everyone, and welcome into CrushTheStreet.com. I'm Kenneth Amador, and I got a brand new guest on the line with me here, James Corbett, and he's got the CorbettReport.com, and he's been living and working in Japan since 2004, and he started the Corbett Report website in 2007, and he calls it an outlet for independent critical analysis, politics, society, history, economics. This is the kind of website and the kind of guy that's going to really dig deep, go behind the curtain and talk about things that really the mainstream media isn't talking about. And I feel like we're going to get some good insight today on what's going on in the economy and maybe some things the mainstream media isn't covering. And, you know, he's, he's done a ton of research out there. He's a, an economist. He runs a podcast and he's an editorial writer for the international forecaster and so without any further ado james thanks for coming on crush the street with me here well thank you for having me on it's a pleasure to be here well in latest news we've had another fed rate hike and i guess my question is in your opinion when is this going to start to hurt uh as powell is signaling aggressive rate hikes going forward here is it going to start to hurt is the real question because we now live in this economic fantasy land where bad news is good news. So every time there's some potentially economically cataclysmic news, the markets celebrate and reach new record highs because, of course, I think the fundamental breaking point was reached a decade ago when we saw the financial crisis and we saw the results of that financial crisis. One of the greatest moments of anxiety and potential cataclysm in recent economic history was met with trillions upon trillions of dollars of bailouts for, for Wall Street and uh, connected to banking institutions. So the idea of any sort of uh, moral agency in, uh, the, uh, in the, the economic sphere has been fundamentally removed from the scene so that now investors are assured that if there is some sort of horrible cataclysmic thing that happens, it's going to result in free helicopter money from the Fed and raining down into the markets. So, hey, it's bad news is good news. So rate hikes are not having their old intended effect of sopping up some of that uh, credit that's been spilled around over the last decade. Um, as we know, uh, as other people have uh, documented and it's been reported on Yahoo News and everywhere else, 93% of the market rise from 2008 to 2016 was directly attributable to the money that uh, the Federal Reserve pumped into the system through its quantitative easing and other programs that it's been running uh, for several years. And this is just the after effects of that. They're trying to clean up and uh, hope that there's no hangover or no toxic effects from all the, you know, the, the cocaine that they spiked, spiked in the punch bowl. Um, and now they're trying to sop it back up slowly through the straw with these rate hikes. And no, oh, don't worry guys, it's, uh, everything's gonna be okay. Uh, personally, I'm not buying it. I think at some point, economic reality will intrude back upon this illusion that's been drawn over us. But for the time being, it's party like it's 1999, which may be the best analogy here, because of course, we know that was the, uh, the, the peak of the dot-com bubble. And we know what happened after the dot-com bubble burst. So uh, are we seeing a, a repeat of that? I guess time will tell. So James, what exactly are, are you predicting then? Uh, using that example, the 1999.com bubble, it wasn't, it was a correction. It was a, it was a stock market crash, what have you. 
Uh, but then, you know, if other, as otherwise, you know, most people would say things just kept going, right? Uh, and same thing in the 2008 financial crisis. It was a bad financial crisis, but here we are in, in 2018 and, you know, things feel pretty good. We got the, as far as headline numbers go, you know, low unemployment and wages are rising. Uh, are we in for a correction? Are we in for something even bigger than we even saw in 2008? Yes, and yes, I think both. Uh, I say that 2008 might have been the breaking point of economic reality where we entered this um, bad news is good news inversion. But you could make that argument that that happened back during the dot-com bubble and the breaking of that because, as you say, things went along. And in fact, things, I mean, the markets have now reached new record highs that they hadn't even hit during the 99 peak when during that irrational exuberance, as we all remember uh, Greenspan uh, deeming it uh, back in the 90s regarding pets.com and anything else.com suddenly getting billion dollar plus valuations um, that just had no bearing on economic reality. Well, now we've got Facebook and Twitter and, and Google and all these companies that can barely turn a profit that are somehow hitting these, well, Apple has tr a trillion dollars in the bank now. What's going on? Oh, it must be all all, all corrected somehow. No, uh, of course the, the the breaking of the dot com bubble and the the potential cataclysm that that could have should have eventuated and didn't really eventuate even after nine eleven and all the craziness surrounding that the economy actually did really well and entered this crazy kind of bubble period. Oh, right, bubble period. The housing bubble, the subprime, which led to the 2008 crisis, which led to the quantitative easing, the trillion dollars of uh, bailouts and loans. And, and what is the next stage in this? Uh, again, they keep blowing up the bubble further and further after each crisis, making the next crisis even worse. So if 2008 was bad, what will 2018, 19, 20, whatever it, it ultimately ends, what will that look like? Uh, again, as Yogi Berra says, predicting the uh, pr predictions are hard, especially about the future. So I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea what the time limit on this period of economic uh, inversion is, but it will snap back at some point. And I think one of the things that might bring us back to some sort of economic reality is the trade wars right now that are shaping up and that we're just seeing, I think, the beginning of. As some people have warned, this could be a decades-long process that is being kicked off right now and will absolutely have an effect, obviously, on China, I think, are going to be the, in the short term, are obviously going to be feeling the, the effects of this being a heavily export-dependent economy still, despite the Chinese Communist Party's best efforts to wrench things around and make a more domestic, uh, demand-driven economy. That's not the case at this point. So they're going to be feeling the effects of this. But ultimately, it will come back home to roost, and this will affect the U.S. as well. And at that point, and when it starts disrupting global trade, which has been the backbone and engine of global growth, economically speaking, for the past couple of decades, what is that going to mean? And what is that going to pretend? Again, I don't think you can pretend and you can paper things over with uh, paper dollars as much as you want. But at some point when the piper comes calling and uh, dues have to be paid, are, are they going to be paid in U.S. dollars, U.S. Federal Reserve notes? And if so, for how much longer will that system be maintainable? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic going on, especially with the trade wars, as you, you brought up. I think in an earnings call, uh, or I, I read this, that in earnings calls for this year, we've had 
more talk of trade wars than at any other time in history. And so I know companies are very concerned about this. And I'm curious because, you know, this would ultimately mean higher prices and could trigger a slowdown in the economy going forward. But as you pointed out, bad news is good news. So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, as you also pointed out, China exports a lot more than the U.S. exports. So in theory and initially, it would seem like it would be more of a problem for China dealing with these tariffs than it would be for the U.S. So uh, maybe you can just expand on that a little more. And, you know, who, who would be the, the bigger loser in this situation, you know, dealing with these trade wars? Yeah, I, it's a good question because it's not it's not as obvious as, as I think some people would um, paint it. Uh, I think in the short term, it is obvious that China is going to be the, the feeling the, the greater effects. Uh, the U.S. economy can absorb this a lot with a lot more ease than the Chinese economy can absorb this type of disruption. And we're already starting to see the beginnings of the thin edge of the wedge of that. Uh, for what it's worth, the Asian Development Bank has just downgraded their growth outlook for uh, the Asian region generally from uh, uh, a 6% plus growth projection for 2019 down to 5.8% and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is, again, just the beginnings of it and take these predictions for what they're worth. But I think everyone understands that the, the type of trade disruption that's happening now is going to start affecting Asian developing nations as well as China, as well as us here in Japan. And uh, that's going to have the, the bigger effect in the short term. But the longer term consequences of this, as I say, are not uh, as easily apparent because I think if China is able to weather the, the immediate storm that's, that's coming right now, they are potentially in the better position to wait this out in the long term. And I say that because, of course, we have seen in the last several years the crazy, the un unbelievable spending spree that's going on in the One Belt, One Road initiative, the Belt and Road initiative that is now pumping, well, is projected to pump as much as a trillion dollars into various countries throughout Central Asia, Africa, um, into Europe. Uh, we're starting to see the creation of an entire alternative trading infrastructure that did not exist, that is being funded with the money that China has built up through its reserves, through its uh, trade surplus with, with the U.S. over the last couple of decades. They're now pumping that into purchasing physical uh, infrastructure and the trade routes and the access to markets that they need in order to circumvent their reliance on the United States. And as the U.S. pushes away not just China, but really all of its trading partners at this point, even Canada and Mexico and threatening all sorts of trade wars in all different directions, China is going to start seeing, I think, more willing uh, allies in its quest to to build up this alternative trading infrastructure. One example of which was recently we saw the German finance minister come out and say, we need an alternative to the SWIFT network. Of course, the, uh, the banking communication network that basically all banks in the world use to communicate and uh, to, to transact across borders, uh, which is a politically neutral organization, quote unquote, based in Belgium that, well, in 2012, when the US uh, State Department put pressure on the EU uh, specifically to sanction various Iranian banks, the SWIFT network felt that pressure and ultimately did delist those Iranian banks from the network. Uh, when China and Russia saw that, they, they said, well, this is a weapon that can and will presumably be used against the U.S. State Department's enemies in the future, i.e. us. 
So we need an alternative to this. So we saw the creation uh, in 2015, I believe, of the CIPS, which is the Chinese version of SWIFT um, that they created as basically a, a get out of jail card it should and if and when those sanctions start to, to fall down on them. Uh, it's kind of a pipe dream thing in some ways because as, uh, as I'm sure some people saw, immediately after the creation of the CIPS, it signed a memorandum of understanding with SWIFT for SWIFT to actually carry the communications, the transactions for the CIPS network. So the SWIFT alternative actually uses SWIFT. <laughs> so it's not much of an alternative, but the idea is there. And just a few months ago, we saw the German for, uh, finance minister say, you know, there's all this pressure from the US about the Iranian banks again. Maybe we need an alternative to SWIFT here in Europe. And now we're starting to see the beginnings of that happening. Uh, at some point, it's going to occur to China and Russia and the EU and whoever else that, well, if we combine our efforts, maybe we can actually create a real alternative, not just this toothless uh, CIPS or something like that. And when that starts to happen, and when we start to see Europe heading more towards Asia than towards the US, then we can see a, probably a, a significant shift. And that's, again, that's a longer term thing. I'm not seeing that happening in the next few years, but certainly over the course of a decade or two decades, especially if the trade wars increase from here and the uh, situation gets exacerbated, one can imagine that the ultimate conclusion of this will be the creation of an entire alternative infrastructure that will not depend on trade with the U.S., which is essentially the U.S. cutting off its own nose to spite its face because, yeah, it might win in the short run, but if in the long run it creates an entire alternative structure which ultimately dethrones the dollar because who needs to transact in Federal Reserve notes? Who needs to buy all this, these U.S. treasuries when we have all of this infrastructure and we're doing all this trade amongst ourselves? At some point, some sort of alternative will, uh, will make economic and monetary sense. And at that point, if the U.S. dollar ever does get dethroned as the world reserve currency, it's essentially game over. That's the point at which you cannot... Uh, participate in this economic inversion anymore because reality will will uh, not be um, be it will not be able to cover over reality with the paper dollars uh, at that point yeah you know it's one of those things uh and i'll, I'll be upfront. I, I there's a lot of things about trump that i like um but one of the things obviously the deficit growing the deficit he hasn't been any better at that than anybody else, right? You know, as, as bad as anybody else and even worse. And, you know, the question could be asked, is China, for every dollar that they're going in debt, are they investing it in a better way than the U.S. is, you know, spending money uh, for wars and military all around the world and, and, you know, entitlement programs, while China is also going into debt, but, you know, building out a hundred years worth of infrastructure and, and growth and, and pouring it into their economy uh, for a potentially more lucrative, you know, uh, a better ROI in the future than let's say the each dollar that we're going into debt here in the U.S. So, um, yeah, I mean, having said that, maybe uh, touch on that a little bit and uh, share some thoughts. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think most people who are just casually looking at the headlines probably don't appreciate the fact that, yes, the first decade of the 21st century was, um, in, from the Chinese perspective, was very much dominated by the, the general growth of global trade and their, their 
incredible um, GDP growth in that period was driven by actual productive trade and economic activity. From the point of the 2008 crisis onwards, uh, the Chinese economy has been largely relying on spigot of money from the, the People's Bank of China. It's been largely credit-based boom over the last decade. Um, but as you say, unlike the Federal Reserve, which was just basically pumping money into the, the, uh, the, the Fed-parked holdings of the various banks to basically make sure that they, they were uh, properly, uh, they had their proper reserves so they could continue to function, and it was just sitting there doing nothing, adding absolutely nothing to the productive economy. The Chinese, on the other hand, were all this time investing in actual infrastructure, in productive economic activity, in creating the ghost cities that everyone has heard about at this point, which is going to facilitate the largest migration in human history as the Chinese uh, rural population starts to move into these, these ghost cities, and they're not so ghosty anymore. Uh, we're going to see some incredible things happening, uh, presumably, assuming all of this continues uh, going forward in the next several years. And that has been based on this, yeah, it's been a credit boom in China for the last decade, but it's been a credit boom that has now physical, tangible results to it. And the next stage of that, of course, is the Belt and Road Initiative that we're seeing in, uh, going into place now. And now it's not just in China, it's throughout Central Asia, it's in Africa, it's in other places now that this physical infrastructure is going into place. And the Chinese are doing it the, the smart way, I guess, or the crafty way in terms of uh, providing all of this money for this infrastructure through these extremely low, uh, low interest loans and uh, sweetheart deals with uh, various people who are participating with them, but a couple of springs attached. And uh, one example of that was the deep, uh, deep sea port that they built for Sri Lanka recently. Sri Lanka couldn't end up paying the, uh, the, 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 the payments on that, and China took physical possession of it this year. So they're getting the physical infrastructure that they're helping to finance all around the, the globe at this point, or at least, as I say, in Central Asia and Africa specifically. And uh, that, is, that is a significant change, obviously. They're converting all of this uh, debt and the, 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 the sort of economic capital that they've accrued over the past, past couple of decades into physical infrastructure and geopolitical capital. Um, it, again, it's a long change and it takes time for that to happen, but it is happening as we see right now. And that, that's why I think the long-term uh, implications of a trade war are very different than the short-term ones. Yeah, I guess it's always been a function of being the cleanest shirt in the basket of laundry, right? And that's always been the U.S. in this situation. And uh, the longer the U.S. continues to prop up and posture with its uh, positive headline numbers, the the stock market continuing to go up and, you know, really add to that propaganda. Uh, the longer I, I think that'll continue to be the case until, you know, things ultimately start to break down and, and shifts begin to happen. And I got to agree with you. I think China is going to absorb a lot of this demand that, you know, was once had here in, in the United States. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, James, if you would, uh, share some closing thoughts here. You know, I, I'd like to get your thoughts on where should people be focused? What do people do uh, kind of waiting for this to play out? Should they be in cash? Should they be uh, renting their house, uh, you know, owning their house? You know, what, what, where should the focus be as we kind of deal with this and as things start to shake out? Yeah, well, the bigger perspective on this that I provide at the Corporate Report is not just looking at what we're being presented with on the surface level here, which is 
sort of China versus the U.S., which is shaping up to be the 21st century equivalent of the 20th century Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And we're seeing them starting to butt heads and we're starting to see the uh, the geopolitical reality starting to shape around that. And so we're seeing some sort of, it's being hailed as maybe the BRICS or the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or something like that, which is a counter to the IMF World Bank uh, infrastructure or to the uh, um, uh, NATO or, or the, these kind of counter institutions. And we're starting to see that taking, taking shape um, right now. And the implication is, well, we have to take a side here and we have to, in, you know, well, the future is going to be in Eurasia, so people should be investing in that or something along those lines. I think that's too simplistic. I think that um, neglects the historical uh, reality of how China became the economic juggernaut that it is right now. It didn't just happen overnight. It happened through the groundwork that was laid decades prior, back uh, as far as the uh, uh, opening of relations back in 1970-71, but uh, certainly by 1980-81-82, when you had people like Rong Yiren of CIDIC going to New York, specifically not to the not, not to the center of government power in Washington, D.C. No, he went to New York. He went to Chase Manhattan uh, in a meeting with David Rockefeller, attended by many uh, bankers uh, from Wall Street, where they signed the agreements that laid the financial infrastructure that led to the rise of China as an economic juggernaut. So this, this happened decades ago. It's been planned and it's been talked about at length and ad nauseum by geopolitical and other commentators for a very long time. You have Henry Kissinger writing all about China and uh, frequently visiting China. Uh, you have uh, uh, George Soros talking about China as the engine and the model for the new world order and all of this. You, you have this type of rhetoric for a very long time where clearly uh, China has been positioned to be essentially the big foil for the United States and f uh, financial power, where actually Wall Street and the, the, a lot of the banking interests have been cooperating with China all this time. So I think there's a deeper story going on here, which to me suggests that the answer is not going to come in investing this way or that um, in either side of a, uh, an equation that is fundamentally controlled by basically the same people. Um, I think the solution then, uh, well, if we, if we want to look at it, even just at a technological level, uh, essentially these monetary instruments that people are trading in right now, these Federal Reserve notes or whatever they, the paper of, uh, of, of choices in your country of residence, is essentially, it's centuries old technology. And it relies on this idea that we need a central bank to ward over the, the money supply and control it from a top-down position and to set uh, interest rates and all of this in order to control the money supply. That's, that's, that's 20th century thinking at best. 21st century, we're looking at the ways that decentralization can and is already taking place in all aspects of life, our, our lives. Me sitting here in Japan doing a podcast that's been seen literally tens of millions of times all over the world, and I get feedback every day from people on every corner of the globe. That's an example from the information level of how we're being decentralized. On the monetary level, it is things like cryptocurrency, but not just cryptocurrency, but certainly things like that, which are pointing the way towards decentralization of the financial and monetary infrastructure of our lives. And I think that is going to be, uh, I'm not saying that, hey, go out and invest in Bitcoin and everything's going to be okay. Certainly not. Um, there's a lot of volatility along the way. And I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that people, you know, take their life savings and put it all in some nest egg like that. 
But I'm saying that in the future, if we want to escape these types of geopolitical situations, which result from this controlled top-down system, we're going to have to find ways to participate in peer-to-peer currencies of various sorts. And we now actually have the technology and the ability to do that, and I think we have to explore that. So if people go to CorbettReport.com and type solutions into my search bar, you'll find dozens of podcasts and interviews and videos that I've done over the years talking about uh, to a large extent, monetary solutions and what people can and should be doing in terms of forming community, community currencies, lets, uh, systems, those types of things, which I think will be the actual infrastructure that survives whatever kind of financial cataclysm that may or may not be coming. Again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. But at the end of the day, if and when, you know, Great Depression Part 2 starts, it will be the community infrastructures that you have in place, which doesn't in this day and age necessarily mean your geographical community, although I think that is important. But now we have communities of interest that form online and that can transact and communicate without top-down interference through things like cryptocurrency. So I think that's the way forward, ultimately. And again, I'm not saying this is going to be a way to make make all sorts of money or to protect your nest egg. That's investment advice, which is a whole different thing, which I don't, that's, uh, that's not my, my business. But I, I'm looking for the way forward for humanity to basically survive this incredibly um, crazy time that we're living through. And I think things are only going to get crazier from here. Yeah, and I, I agree with you 100%. And that top-down control really is being fought by cryptocurrency. And, um, you know, I, I look at it as, you know, trying to contain water in your hand. You know, you're fighting this inevitable. And the solution, one of the solutions was cryptocurrencies and, you know, maybe gold or the internet is this decentralized platform that's allowed communication to be much more uh, level equalized. You know, we're not having to just depend on a few mainstream news outlets, but here we are just having a conversation. Whether people think we're, we're crazy or not, the opportunity to discuss uh, these sorts of things and, and put these conversations out there is making people a lot more informed and not just controlled by, by one narrative. And, and that's one of the things I absolutely love about the internet. And, and I appreciate the work that you do and coming on and, and sharing this information. So uh, you alluded to it. If people want to learn more about uh, what you do, maybe just give one final plug. And yeah, thanks, James, for coming on Crush the Street with me. Yes, all my work is available 100% free for download uh, at CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T report.com. 11 years now of archives of audio, video, uh, interviews, articles, all sorts of things that I've done over the past 11 years. Again, all free, freely available for download. I hope people check it out. Use it as a resource. That's, a, that's what it's intended to be. Thank you, sir. 